Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm always very glad to have all of you with us as we move closer and closer to what, as I've said on the show a number of times, I now think of as the last day of voting, November 8th, since we've had so many people turn out for the polls in early voting in Georgia. Let's get right to the panel because we have an awful lot to uh, talk about. Mark Nisi is back with us. He covers elections uh, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution like nobody else in town. And Mark Nisi, we're really glad to have you here uh, again today. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be back. Thank you. Um, we are also joined by Renee Alegria, the publisher of what is now called Mundo Now. And uh, Renee, it's been a while since we've seen you, and we're really happy that you're back on the show today. We're going to talk a bit about the Hispanic vote in Georgia a little later in the program, and so uh, it'll be great to have you uh, help us with that conversation. Hey, thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Kurt Young is back with us. He's a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. but he is also the chairman of the political science department at Clark Atlanta. Kurt, you've got a lot of responsibilities on your shoulders. And, uh, good morning, Bill. I hope everyone's doing well. And, and you know, Bill, it, it, any cheer, chairing of any department is a massive undertaking, but we, our department, we're really on the move now. We have a lot of exciting things happening. So uh, they say, be careful what you ask for. You might just get it, right? <laughs> Hey, Kurt, real quickly, because, um, you know, we've had uh, Audrey Haynes on the show recently. Um, we had uh, Tammy Greer on, your colleague. And I've asked them how their students are engaged in the elections right now. What about mm-hmm. yours? Are they excited about this election? Are they out volunteering? Um, tell us a little bit about your students. Yeah, we have a, a number of uh, get out the vote, uh, um, voter registration, uh, voter turnout, mobilizing the young vote campaigns on campus right now. It's a really exciting time. It's not new, though, Bill. We tend to have these uh, efforts around election time every cycle. Um, it's hard, though, to tell exactly what's mobilizing them um, um, it, because they come from different parts of the country. Um, they sure. have different perspectives on the election. Uh, they have leanings that they share in common, uh, but it's hard to put a finger on exactly how to interpret the energy, right? Except yeah, to say that they are mobilized. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're mobilized. We're yeah. joined for the first time uh, today, and I'm really glad to welcome her by Patricia Soto, servant, digital content producer at Univision. Uh, Patricia, uh, you have been, I think, in Atlanta for a little bit more than a year working at Univision. But you worked with Univision and CNN uh, before that in Mexico City, if I got that right. And uh, yeah. now we have you here in our, in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been it's it's about to be a year. Like in a, I think it's by the end of these 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 weeks. So yeah, it's it's exciting times to be here in Georgia. All the election coverage. It's you know it's intense. 
but we're here. We're here for it. We're here to inform. And um, yeah, it's been exciting, the move here. Uh, certainly, I was not expecting it to be this heated. I'm very surprised in the best ways, I think. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, all right. right, we've. I want to start with this latest story about Herschel Walker. Um, Mark Nisi, let me ask you to weigh in on this first. Um, we got new reporting that a, a second woman uh, says that she had a long-term relationship with Herschel Walker, that um, she was pregnant, got pregnant by him, and he insisted that she have an abortion. She didn't want to do it, uh, and yet he made. He's she says through her lawyer, Gloria Allred, who is obviously a celebrity attorney in California, um, that he basically said, you got to do it. And he drove her to a Dallas abortion clinic and paid for the procedure. Now, the woman, Mark, remains anonymous. And so we have to be a little careful about stories like this. But um, why don't you start us off on your thoughts as you saw this story develop yesterday, late yesterday afternoon. Well, sure. This is the second woman who has made similar claims. Um, the first claims were initially reported by the Daily Beast and confirmed by other media. And now we have a second woman, but this time we don't have a name to go with it. What's interesting to me is beyond whether it's your, different voters are going to decide what they want to believe, correct, but to women is one more piece of information that voters can process. But will this matter to voters? Or do they know anything more today than they knew yesterday? I think those are the questions to ask. And are how movable are voters this close to the election? Is this going to influence undecided voters, that small sliver that could make a difference? And then you have to also think about those voters who are on the fence about either even voting in the U.S. Senate race. I wonder, um, you know, there are plenty of regular voters who do leave some races blank. Will we see that happen? And we certainly saw that in the 2020 presidential election when um, there were people who skipped Trump's name but voted for Senate and congressional candidates. So are we going to see some of that going on? We just don't know what the impact of these allegations are. And we've seen from the past that it all depends on the race and the electorate and the context of that year. Sometimes things matter. Sometimes, like in 2020, when there were allegations about Trump, it didn't really seem to hurt him. Well, Renee, we do have at least uh, something to guide us in our understanding of this, and that's this. After initially the first woman came forward um, and accused uh, Herschel Walker, who says he is adamantly pro-life, who uh, says no exceptions uh, should be allowed for women uh, to have an abortion. Um, after the first woman came forward, he took a dip in most of the polling of this race, um, fell behind Warnock on an average of about four points. At, as of right now, if you look at the real clear politics averages of recent polls, it's a dead heat again. Walker has absorbed whatever blow he took from that first allegation and is back in a, in a complete dead heat with um, Warnock. So, you know, Mark Nisi is correct. Is there any reason to think this is going to have 
any impact at all, or is it all, as we have come to say recently, especially, we're all talking about elections being baked in? Well, look, I I think it will have some impact. There are independents out there. There are folks who are decided. You know, there are small margins out there that uh, will decide this election. So I do think that this will have an impact. Uh, yes, there are, there are potatoes that are already baked, but the sour cream hasn't really been served yet, right? And that's, that's who's going to decide this election. I, listening to her, you know, to her tape, which, you know, she was grayed out, right, in, 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 in the video, uh, to keep her anonymous, she, she, her voice rang with with truthfulness, you know, there was hurt and there was outrage in there. She she stated that she is an independent. She stated that she had voted for Trump in 2016 and, and 2020, um, but that she just she came out because she could not live with herself. Right. Or whatever, however she phrased it uh, and vote for someone who is an obvious hypocrite, her words, uh, into representing Georgia in, in the Senate. It's really, I think, about abortion, as as you as you stated here. It will will individuals, women primarily, suburban women, et cetera, come out and take a stand and say, "This we can't have this. We can't have someone in power, traditionally a male, say, and pressure women into having." abortions or deciding on what they can do with their bodies. And I think that's uh, going to be the underlying, or not underlying, but actually the, the overlying um, message here for in, uh, independence, undecided, primarily women. And, and that point is, I think that's the key point, the extent to which this issue can generate new voters that may have gone under the radar in such a way that they can affect the outcome of the election. The typical or the historical approach here, uh, uh, Bill, think of this now. The idea here in most campaigns is when you have an issue like this, you use the issue to either shame the candidate or you use the issue to expose the hypocrisy in the candidate's position uh, versus what what he's saying versus what he or she has said versus what they have done historically. Or you use the issue to expose the extreme nature of the candidate. I think uh, um, it was mentioned just a moment ago that he takes a position where he stands against abortion in any situation. And that could be framed as an extreme position. But there are some problems with business as usual in those forms of campaigning. One, we're in extreme, an extreme time in history right now, where what may have been used as a way of exposing extremism is nullified by the fact that the electorate may be seen to be in an extreme moment. Uh, And as someone just mentioned a moment ago, the notion of shaming the candidate or exposing hypocrisy, it seems to be turned on its head now because we've seen at the highest level of, 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 of electoral politics where it didn't work. What we, I think, are looking at here is the extent to which, because the electorate in the state is so evenly divided, and we don't quite know who is coming out as new voters, I think what you have here is kind of a reverse impact. In essence, what we're seeing is maybe because of what we just said, the charges against Walker will actually mobilize voters in a moment where we are seeing uh, uh, that even truth itself is being uh, called into question and the press is being called into question. It may mobilize voters to come out and support him and rally his base in such a way that we are not anticipating. Uh, Patricia, uh, the uh, the Republic, 
Republicans have uh, rallied around Herschel Walker. Lindsey Graham was campaigning with him yesterday. They appeared together on uh, Sean Hannity's show on Fox News last night. Herschel Walker uh, said, as he said about the first allegations, they're a lie. Um, he said they're picking on the wrong guy if they think that they can kick me around, essentially. Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, is campaigning uh, with him. Ted Cruz is coming in. Uh, so there's no question that Repub national Republicans want this seat at any cost. You know, um, I really do think, just as Kurt, Mark, and Renee were saying that, um, you know, we really don't know how these are going to how this is going to play in the voting polls, right? We don't really know how this is going to turn in the voters' turnover. Sorry. So um, I think it can go either way. You know, what I think it's a key thing to keep in mind always is that yes. He can say whatever he want to say, like in the public. And we got to keep in mind that he's campaigning. He's showing one of the, you know, whatever the message that he thinks is going to appeal more to the voter base. And we're talking about a topic that might cost lives for women. So we really want to separate, you know, we and, and this is, um, I think, the key issue. Like, um, yes, we got to be talking about uh, Herschel Walker. He's campaigning. He's running for Senate. His decisions can take an impact in women's lives. Women's lives. So I really um, want to try to, uh, you know, appeal to voters to try to make that separation, right? To keep in mind that, you know, it's, um, you know, one can get, get up in, um, caught up in, in gossip in whatever he's saying. It's, you know... It's a form of entertainment also. They know it's a form of entertainment. That's why they sometimes go and make these, um, you know, allegations. He can say it's lies. And, you know, um, as Rene was saying, having testimonies of um, people that are uh, subjected to being forced to have an abortion, it's a very serious matter. So we got to take that into consideration also. Yeah, and, and, I... I, I... <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, I think I want to be clear. I know you're not saying that uh, the women who have brought forth these allegations see this as a form of entertainment. They clearly are very, uh, have gone through, uh, uh, they tell us some real emotional distress over this issue. But there's no question that we have an appetite for this kind of, uh, of uh, personal uh, uh, issues that, that sometimes candidates face. Renee? I, I think what Patricia um, is alluding to, and I agree, is that, you know, it's messy. It's messy. There's drama. It's chaotic. I, you know, one thing that you saw with uh, voters who voted for Trump in 16 that did not vote for him in 2020 was they didn't want to have that much chaos in their lives anymore. You know, and here we're kind of going through the same thing with the, 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 the Herschel campaign and saying that every day. There's something new that we didn't know, something new that just kind of makes it all a spectacle. Everything about the campaign is focused on diverting attention away from the real issues, right? Which we don't really know if he has a grasp of them. And you see the closing of ranks of Republicans nationwide, and it just makes you wonder, you know, well, what, if, what else are they trying to hide here, you know? And if I, you know, again, I, I, I hearken back to 
from 2020 and the voters who flipped against Trump in 2020. And they wanted stability. They wanted, you know, Biden as a as a kind of counterweight to what we were all going through, which was, again, the daily, like, what's he going to say next? What's going to happen next? I think yeah. I agree with Patricia in that that's probably something that's I, at play. Yeah. Um, Mark, uh, one other comment about this, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, uh, Brian Kemp is not weighing in, as he didn't want to weigh in on the last allegation. He was on Fox News last night, and uh, he was asked whether he thinks Herschel Walker will win his race, an opening to talk about this latest allegation. And here's the quote from Brian Kemp. I'm working on getting the whole ticket across the finish line. The Democrats have been beating us on the ground here for several decades. I watched that happen in 2020, and we're not going to let that happen again in 2022. So, um, you know, Kemp has done an awfully good job in this campaign of staying on message, avoiding getting involved in any of these kinds of uh, difficult uh, uh, fights that Herschel Walker has to contend with. Sure. And again, this is just like a strategy with Trump. You know, he doesn't want to alienate Trump, um, just like he doesn't want to alienate Republicans who support Herschel Walker. And that allows voters to vote for the governor for reelection as his own candidate. And that has been a successful strategy for him. We see that continuing and he is ahead in the polls. And so I think we can expect Governor Kemp to continue that course, running as his own man on his own record and, of course, broadly supporting the Republican ticket, but really trying not to talk about other people. Kurt, one last comment before we move yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, very, very briefly, uh, Bill. And let's add to that: there's uh, uh, there's an expression in boxing that says "style makes fights," right? Uh, and what what Kemp is dealing with is a formidable formidable opponent in the form of a black woman, uh, a woman who is going to be able to use. And I don't want to reduce this to uh, just political uh, rhetoric around an important issue uh, uh, like abortion. Um, uh, as it pertains to the Walker race, it's a di- different dynamic in terms of a, a race between a, a, a white man and a black woman and two black men, right? The, the issue plays out differently in, in a very tight race, uh, given that kind of demographic uh, uh, aspect of the race itself. Okay, well, we're going to watch how this unfolds, but so far it appears that Walker is uh, he's denying this as he denied the first charge, and Republicans continue to rally around him, and when it comes right down to it, it's voters who will have the last word on this issue. Mark, let me come back to you uh, uh, to talk about voting. Um, We know that we've had extraordinary record-setting turnout in early voting so far. You've uh, written about it extensively. But I want to talk about today um, concerns about what could happen on Election Day. You have a, shared a co-byline um, uh, about a week ago, I think it was, with Chris Joyner. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read to you the lead of that story. As early voting is underway in Georgia's first general election since the razor-thin 2020 presidential contest, law enforcement and election officials are watching for disruptions by radicalized individuals feeding off conspiracy theories and disproven allegations of fraud. What's the concern that could happen in polling places, uh, Mark? Well, who knows, right? It's the unknown. But 
there's a concern there could be aggressive poll watchers. There could potentially be militias that show up at polling places in a form of voter intimidation, even efforts to protect the polls. Let's say you bring in extra police. That could be viewed as an intimidation <laughs> tactic in communities that don't necessarily trust the police. So these things have to be handled carefully. What you also see in this article is that a lot of the potential threats come after Election Day, not necessarily in polling places themselves. But as we saw in 2020, during recounts and vote counts and reviews and audits, and we're going to go through that again. And generally speaking, the losing candidates in close races are the most aggressive and most concerned and most trying to look at every possible angle to gain back any lost ground. And so the post-election day period is definitely a big concern. Certainly there is reason for concern about disruption at polling places as well. But who knows? We have to be vigilant. Patricia? Yeah, I just wanted to to add to what Mark was saying that, uh, you know, along the week we had uh, Rafael Lavaria, who's known by the show also, and he was explaining to us all the importance like social media is having towards these threats, right? Like people that uh, really have to be mindful about what they're reading about, you know, double checking the even the photographs, because now like people are going really professional and doing these threats and trying to press people to vote for a certain candidate. And they're going very far. So, yes, uh, what Mark is saying, not just on Election Day, but, you know, try to keep in mind that um, this is floating around and social media spreads like fast. So we um, so definitely. Um, the what Mark is saying in his article is, is is very important because of that because we usually work up to election day and we give the results and that's it and there's so much more that goes into the communities after that day. Uh, Renee, um, what one of the people quoted in the uh, piece that uh, Mark and Chris Joyner wrote uh, is Ben Pop. He's a researcher for the Anti Defamation League Center on Extremism, um, and he says we're definitely concerned and prepared. Um, and he says the problem is uh, election fraud narratives. We all know that. He points out that there haven't been any specific threats towards specific election workers, but generalized rhetoric, generalized rhetoric is out there. And, Renee, I think the more important point of what Pop talks about is that he says it's not groups like Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. It's individuals motivated by these conspiracy theories that may take it upon themselves to take action somehow uh, to, they think, protect the integrity of the vote. Yeah, look, uh, there's there's so much that, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a, such a bizarre and, and sad turn of events, really, in our, our democracy. My, my parents immigrated to this country because they believed that the United States was a beacon of democracy, right? An armed, roamed, roaming thugs and polling booths. Um, is a symbol of failed democracies from Latin America, from around the world, right? And here we're seeing this play out uh, in, in on our shores, right? Uh, yeah, I, I do think some of these are isolated incidences. Um, but look, voting has become, uh, I, I think, a, a form of psychological trauma with this potential of harm, right? Will I be accosted if, you know, crazies with guns show up to my 
uh, local voting station. And most most likely not, right? But the, the specter is out there. And with that, the result may be folks, the minuscule percentage of folks that need to vote do not vote. I, I, I watched this really, uh, it, was, it was amusing, but it's sad, actually, uh, a TikToker um, the other day that said about uh, cable TV news um, doing to our parents what our parents said violent video games would do to us in that they have mm. become angry, unhinged, violent zombies with trigger fingers. And I, I found that juxtaposition of of what we're going through so ironic so sad yeah. but also you know a little amusing in that maybe it's okay to play call of duty <laughs> you know yeah yeah mark and then kurt I, mark let me ask you one question and then kurt i know you want to jump in <clears throat> one of the things that's important here is as i think we have talked i know we've talked about it on the show before is that the legislature last year did pass a bill which allows any individual in georgia to file uh, challenges to any number of voter registrations uh, that they want to. Um, but um, the Secretary of State's office did issue guidance that that cannot happen at a polling place. It has to be done in advance. Now, that doesn't guarantee it won't happen, Mark, but at least the Secretary of State's office is trying to draw a line. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how they try to get that message out even more broadly as we approach election day. Sure. I think we're going to continue to see voter challenges filed with county election offices where individuals argue that registrations are invalid based on information that they might have moved. What the Secretary of State's office did is say, don't do it in polling places. And I don't think we'll see much of that in polling places. I mean, how often is someone going to be able to identify a voter and say, I don't think you're eligible, especially when there are poll workers there. The real danger of this is that people would be challenged ahead of time. And when they arrive at a polling place, then they might have a difficulty casting a ballot if, in fact, they are eligible to vote in Georgia. And we have seen a handful of those cases who have shown up at polling places and been told that their registration has been challenged. Okay. Final thing, though, Kurt. Uh, we do know that um, the Republican National Committee has been recruiting, they say, literally thousands of volunteer poll watchers to work in polling locations across the country, Georgia being a key state for them. And we really don't know to what extent poll watchers might have an impact on election day in terms or and in early voting, for that matter, on um, uh, on dealing with people as they come in to vote and as they watch how the workers themselves are handling the balloting. And who are these people, Bill? And I hate to say in such a, a way, I mean, is there a profile, a psychological profiling being done? Are, are they being screened in a way uh, that uh, 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 that poll workers who go through the established process in every state and every <clears throat> every local jurisdiction has to? Uh, is there a background check? We don't know. We don't know. And one thing, one thing, uh, there's a broader context, Bill. I, I just have to make this point. I disagree, disagree slightly with, with the a point, or at least a premise that Renee offered a second ago, uh, respectfully, which is that the kind of threats that 
we see to be potentially unfolding in front of us is consistent with the expressions of violence in, as it relates to race in American history. This is, this is a constant problem that's a part of the fabric of American uh, historical experience. What we're seeing, what, what I fear is that we're seeing a rejuvenating of, a, of an established uh, a reality in America, right? I mean, look, for example, at what we heard in Charlottesville in 2017. We heard a chant, they will shall not replace us, the Jews shall not replace us. I don't remember exactly the chant. And then we see by 2018 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a manifesto that talks about replacement theory. Then we see in 2018 a manifesto framing uh, uh, um, the, the gunning down of, of those of, uh, of those in um, El Paso, I think it was, uh, in the context of great replacement theory. And then we on and on and on, and, then, uh, and we saw the horrific scenes in Buffalo, manifesto, great replacement theory. This is a part of the history of the American experience that, and I'm, and this is the main point, but and I'm sorry for being long-winded here, but I just have to culminate in this point. What we saw in January, January uh, uh, um, uh, um, insurrection was the potential of that kind of rhetoric to have implications at the very seat of American democracy. There's nothing to my mind to prevent that from happening at the poll locations, especially All given right, the well, kind of recruitment that's taking place. I got to get to a break. Um, look, Democrats are recruiting thousands of poll uh, watchers as well, but it is also true that it is on the Republican side that the fake election uh, theory has been so widespread. Let us hope Mark Nisi has a somewhat more optimistic view of this, and I hope he's right, and that the bleak view of what could happen uh, uh, really doesn't come to fruition. I got to get to a break. Uh, right now, when we come back, we'll have more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Kurt Young, Clark Atlanta University. Renee Alegria, publisher of Mundo Now. Patricia Soda, servant, digital content producer at Univision. And Renee, I'm, I'm sorry. And uh, who did I leave out? Mark Nisi? Welcome back, Mark Nisi of the HAC. I'm sorry. Um, let me start with you, Renee, on this. Um, I, I want to talk about the uh, Hispanic Latino vote in Georgia. But, but if you don't mind, I want to start by quoting a poll of, uh, that was uh, released just last week from Axios News and Ipsos. Um, and, and here's basically the lead of their polling data. Just weeks before the midterms, nearly one in four Latinos still don't know how they'd vote in, um, according to the Axios Ipsos Latino poll. Why it matters? The findings underscore Latinos' collective hold on the American swing vote and Democrats' relatively modest advantage. It's an ominous sign for those who fear a further erosion of the Democrats' support among this large, diverse group. Now, 
33% of the Latinos polled said they'd support a Democrat, a generic Democrat, only 18% a Republican, but the, the numbers are shifting, and that's been uh, something that both Republicans and Democrats have really made note of ever since really 2020 and maybe 2018 to a little extent. Renee? Look, it's, it's uh, every election, there's, where's the Latino vote gonna, gonna go, right? This is this has been happening now for a very very long time, and I I do think that there are so many Latinos out there who have been a part of the political system now that are jaded with okay now they're going to talk to me now they're actually going to consider me you know and then it's four years of not even engaging right and that leads to extreme swing voter tendencies, uh, especially now where we don't have election cycles any longer. It's just one long dialogue of where folks are going to have that, you know, that informed engagement and then where you're going to vote. I, polls are, are tough. Polls are tough in, in Latino demographics, especially. Um, you know, you have the language barriers, issues, age, et cetera, country of origin, as you know, and as we've talked about on the show, we're not a monolithic group, right? But I do think that there now are emerging uh, things to factor into when you're engaging with the Latino vote. And that's just who we are. We're now in this country in a way that we're beyond, say, of Mexican descent or beyond, say, of El Salvadoran descent. Uh, you know, and, and I like to categorize it in, in, in a few ways, if, if I may. One, um, it's when your family or you immigrated to this country. That is a huge indicator of where you're going to vote, how, what you're going to buy, just in general as consumers, right? The last, um, the, 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 the last census, um, was very elucidating in that it really identified what is now about three different types of generations at play and living in the United States, right? You have the first generation, which are individuals that immigrated to the United States, whether undocumented or legally, they have a very strong connection to their country of origin, wherever that may be. They're in the United States, but they really think in terms of their country of origin, right? You have 1.5 is what folks are, are, are calling, which is interesting because this is new. And, and that, those are individuals who immigrated to this country as children, so 10 and under, right? So they, while they're bilingual and bicultural, they definitely have English preferred intake of education, of media, et cetera. And they're kind of a little bit of an X factor, right? Then you have the second generation, which are the sons and daughters of one and 1.5. Those are individuals like myself, right? Born in the United States, educated in the United States. You know, we, we, we prefer our, our media in English, primarily educated in English. We are fully acculturated, right? And with that, it informs what we do, how we spend, how we vote, right? Third generation is, of course, my sons and daughters, right? And they're full on Americans. They don't even speak Spanish. They don't pretend to. They don't even really care, right? It's now become that Spanish dominant immigrant Latinos are only 28% of the entire whole. The rest are English preferred 
bicultural. And yet, who do you see these politicians and brands going to? They go through the funnel of Spanish language to communicate to what are largely English-preferred Latino voters. It's, they're completely missing that, right? And all of this then feeds into the polls and stats and how you connect with who and what we're going to vote for. Renee, that, uh, thank you for giving us such a clear look at the landscape. Because one of the things, Patricia, that I, I just heard from Renee is he made the point at the beginning, Patricia, that we, and we do say this on the show all the time, believing the Latino vote is somehow monolithic is ridiculous. And I always think of that as meaning, well, it depends on country of origin, whether you are from that country or your parents or grandparents are. Um, but Renee's saying a different thing entirely. He's talking about it's not monolithic because of generations. Um, so I thought that was really, really uh, interesting. Patricia, weigh in on this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as, as Renee was speaking, I was just nodding because it's totally something that, you know, now we're uh, we're seeing and we got to take into consideration. For example, you were talking about an actress um, poll, right? And I remember this poll that came right after uh, the Supreme Court ended Roe v. Wade. And, you know, even they say like, and, and I have the figures here, like, for example, just um, in, in Latino households, right? Like uh, when, you know, the first generation talking about abortion, for example, um, when it's like first generation, only 41 percent of immigrants said abortion should be legal. Then when you when you turn to first generation, second generation, generation, sorry, it's it jumps to 59%. And then when you talk about third generation Americans, it jumps even further to 7, 62%. So even in one household, you have different ideas, even between generations, between, as Renee was explaining, the media intake, you know, even the values that you're brought up into, right? Because in uh, a lot of countries in like Latin America and, and a lot of um um, yeah, well, Latin America mainly. Uh, you have these. Um, you have countries that are where, for example, a topic like abortion that's now like coming up in the voting in between um, Latinos as an important topic going into the elections and deciding who to vote, right? And a lot of these places still uh, don't know abortion to be legal, right? And then you have people that are born here and they had that right since they were here. So, of course, it affects them, and it, it's a different take. So, yes, I'm totally uh, here with Rene. we got to make sure um, that, uh, you know, even candidates know about this, that they need to start speaking in, 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 in that language, and not only in that language, but to a generation that's not just uh, Spanish speakers, right? Um, Mark, uh, let, me, let me say that, to some extent, um, Latino voters in Georgia seem to share, of course, many of the same concerns that uh, the rest of the electorate does. So, for instance, the AJC and GPB News and the Georgia News Collaborative released a poll a couple weeks back of Latino uh, voters. And uh, one of the most uh, basic things we learned from that poll for, is similar to what the rest of the country is feeling. Uh, only 6% of respondents said they think the country is headed in the right direction. Uh, they say that their overall concern, their biggest concern, is the economy. 
that um, they're, they're concerned about jobs, they're concerned about inflation. Um, so to some extent, um, that's a really important data point to look at here, Mark. Absolutely. And as you said, that cross a cu- crosses a, cuts across um, all kinds of different demographic and age and background lines. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It is the top issue. Um, the economy in particular and inflation is the top issue pretty much no matter who you ask, according to the polls. Now, the nuance there is I do think that voters, most voters aren't thinking about one thing, right? I mean, you see in many polls, abortion ranked low when it comes to voters being asked their top issue. But does that mean abortion isn't important? I don't think so. I think abortion does matter as an issue, but it might not be the top issue for a vast majority of voters, but it might be, you know, the second or third most important issue for many voters. So uh, that's just another way of saying that we'll have to see the poll that counts, the one that comes out after votes are counted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I know, Renee, you want to jump in, but let me grab Kurt real quickly, too. Uh, because, Kurt, one of the things that we learned in the polling that we all did is that um, the, the Latinos who were polled said that they're basically in an even tie between voting for Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, but they preferred Herschel Walker by something like seven points over Raphael Warnock. And I found that pretty interesting. I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Kurt. And, and then, Renee, please jump in in any way you'd like to. I keep making this point, Bill, and part of it is because of you know my understanding of the, the, the star power of someone like Herschel Walker. I, I'm an old athlete, and I played uh, football at the University of Florida. I probably shouldn't have said that on the show, Bill. Um, and I came, I came to the University of Florida shortly after Herschel's heyday. But, so I remember uh, uh, how powerful his image was, uh, especially when uh, we, we would play Georgia. And he, and he, his, his, I mean, his shadow was just so, so uh, massive across the uh, um, the country. I think that that is still a factor that, regardless of one's background and one's uh, ethnicity, uh, anyone who has an understanding of uh, of that particular individual, individuals like him, uh, uh, that that candidate will benefit from that kind of star power. And I think it applies to the Latino vote just as it does. Uh, to other uh, sectors of the, uh, of the population. But one thing, though, I think was really interesting was to hear, uh, uh, as you were mentioning, Bill, Renee's point about the generational dynamic. And that's just so consistent with the African-American community as well, I should say, just mm. uh, passingly. But if that is correct, if Renee is correct, you will have a segment of the Latino population who came of age politically in Walker's heyday. And they love football just as mm. just as we do. I should just any American will love, right? Because football is an American pastime now. And just because one is Latino doesn't necessarily mean that they are ignorant to or dismissive of the star power of a football, a former football player, Walker Statue. Renee, sum us up before I've got to get to a final break. Sure, I I I agree with the professor in that the celebrity star power of Walker does hold a lot of sway. Um, Latinos very brand loyal. He's a brand. That, you know, celebrity culture is really you know you think it's 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 big in in you know English language USA. It's that times ten in the country of origin. <laughs> 
Latin America, right? Um, so, so I do agree that with, with the professor in, in, in that respect completely. I, I do think, though, that you know, there are things and cracks within the Hispanic, quote, vote that are showing themselves, things that we have known in the Latino community that now through scandal and elucidation are starting to come to light. For example, the L.A. Uh, City Council debacle mm. of primarily Latino council caught on tape saying, all of these racist things uh, with against African-Americans, against, you know, um, uh, individuals, say, in Mexico that are more indigenous looking. There is, you know, and it really it was an outrage, obviously. Right. It led to resignations, et cetera. But it really did show where people are in terms of their structural racism and how that that then feeds our vote. It's present. And the Latino community needs to take a look at that. And others who want the Latino vote need to take that into consideration. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all very much for that, excuse me, uh, conversation. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners agree. Um, Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Mark Nisi, we pay a lot of attention to the top uh, races on uh, the Georgia ballot, and I think that's important. But we should look at, look at we've tried to look at down ballot races as well. And you, uh, again, shared a byline on a piece pointing out that because of uh, gerrymandering, redistricting, um, Georgia's legislative races, there are few of them in the state that are actually really competitive. Talk a little about what you uh, learned. Sure. So Republicans hold a majority in both the state House and the state Senate, and the majority makes the rules and is able to pass the bills that they want. And what happened a year ago is redistricting, where they redrew lines to make populations equal throughout every district in the state. And when you redistrict, the party in power makes those decisions and they have to make equal populations. And Georgia is a growing state. And the Republican Party did make some concessions, created new seats that Democrats are favored to win. But they drew the maps in a way that also eliminates most competitive races and makes most races a shoe in for one party or the other. And so what's left is that in most communities throughout the state, there's not a close contest and some races aren't even contested. You know, there are plenty of districts throughout the state where one party or the other hasn't even bothered to run a candidate. And so what that means is we can be pretty highly confident that Republicans will retain control in the General Assembly after this year's elections. And that, as we see every decade, change does occur as populations change, people move, attitudes change throughout the decade. But for this year, at least, the first year after redistricting, we can be pretty confident that the way the maps were designed are the way that elections will turn out. Yeah, we should point out that the same thing happened when the last Democratic governor was in uh, power in Georgia, Roy Barnes, and the redistricting that uh, his administration did uh, gave Democrats uh, mostly control of most uh, legislative districts across the state. Um, Kurt, 
Um, the uh, Princeton Gerrymandering Project is, is one of the sources of the data that uh, Mark used in his piece. Um, and I don't know if this came from them or not, but according to the article that, that Mark uh, wrote with Maya Prabhu, Democrats are likely to pick up maybe five seats in the House and only one in the Senate, uh, which means, as he points out, they're still going to really be in the minority. And if Stacey Abrams wins the governor's office, Kurt, uh, she's going to be dealing with uh, Republican House and Senate. And with no sign in, in view that it's going to change in terms of the kind of uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, the kind of dynamics across the state that she will be facing as a result of uh, this uh, redistricting. But it was an interesting point uh, Mark made me uh, think about. Not only, it's no saying, be careful what you ask for, you might just get it, right? Not only do we find this consolidating of power under Republican leadership as it relates to redistricting, but one of the implications of what Mark said is that it then also has a direct impact on the type of uh, candidate that comes out of these districts and the freedom that they have to perhaps offer an alternative perspective against what may be the national trend or the, the mood of the electorate in those uh, districts, it may make it very difficult for there to be a, a kind of outlier or a type of uh, alternative view uh, coming from the, elect, uh, uh, the Republican electorate. I think, Renee, what Kurt said is so, so important. There's no room for a moderate in a legislative district uh, if it's all red or all blue, primarily all red, you don't have to worry about having uh, moderate positions and being a compromiser of any sort, Renee. Really, it's, it's, it's almost like that the election then is in the primary and that's, that's it, right? Look, gerrymandering is one of those topics, right, that I think will be historically considered to be the great shame of our current political period in American history. Anyone who thinks about how this reflects how all of us vote is deluding themselves, right? And I think generations will read about this period and, and, and really say, how could they think that that gerrymandered system was a part of our whole democracy? So, but we're in it. We're in the thick of it, right? All right. Um, I'm sorry to say that that is the end of our We don't have any more time uh, left on today's show. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, Kurt Young, thank you so much for being uh, back with us. Mark Nisi, we'll continue to read your reporting on election issues and on voting. And I'm glad you were here with us. Renee Alegria, Patricia Soto Servant, thank you for joining us today as well. Um, as we pointed out on the show today, and certainly you didn't need to hear it from us, the economy, inflation, the cost of living have become the top issue on ballots here in Georgia and across the country. Um, and, and Chase McGee said to us in a meeting the other day, a, a political rewind meeting, he said, well, why don't we do more on talking about just what that means? And he was right. So tomorrow we are going to take a deep dive into the causes of inflation, just what is happening? Are we headed for a recession? And what does that even mean? We're going to do a primer in some ways on, uh, on the economy and on the issues around it in these midterm elections. So I hope you'll be with us for that tomorrow. In the meantime, we're out of time for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you'll come back and join us again tomorrow. Please take care. Stay healthy. Go out and get an early uh, vote cast. And 
maybe stop by and get a, a booster shot uh, for COVID and your flu shot as well. See you all tomorrow.